Well, we're going to start a new series today. I was going to start it last week, but I guess God had something different in mind, and I am totally cool with that. We are going to start a study through the Gospel of Mark. Now, I've been giving Mark Crumrine a difficult time. The Gospel according to Mark Crumrine is not what we're talking about today. Mark's Gospel, not this Mark, but Mark's Gospel is the shortest Gospel and may be the least of the three or the four discussed. But it ties into what we've been discussing these past several weeks. As you know, we've been doing the 21 days of prayer and fasting, and we talked about our vision, how we want to accomplish it. And last week, I believe that God answered a lot of those prayers in this service. Now, what was that for? What was God doing? God was meeting our needs, right? God was here to fill us and bless us and doing great things. But why does he do that? He does that to enable us to be his servants, his people. And that's what Mark's gospel is the theme of. My Bible here when he, on the top of it has a little theme. It says, Christ the servant. The whole focus of Mark is how Jesus became a servant. Now before we start, let's do our due diligence. Matthew, the book of Matthew, was written to the Jews. That has all the Old Testament references in it. It's trying to show the Jewish audience that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Luke was written to the Greeks, and John was written for everyone and focused on solely the deity of Christ. Mark's gospel was written to the Roman Christians, people who were Christians in the, in this, the country of Rome. It explains Jewish customs. It doesn't have any genealogies. It doesn't have any family histories because the Roman believers wouldn't really care about that. Nor did he write about Jesus' birth. He focused on Jesus being a servant to the people that were there. It focuses more on what Jesus did, less on what he said. There are 18 miracles in Mark, but only four parables. Again, stressing the servant part more than the teacher part. I don't know about you, but I'm like a, uh, I guess I call it a kinesthetic learner. I have and a visual learner. I have to, when I get directions, I don't read them. I look at the pictures. I need to know physically how they go together. You can tell me how to do it, but it's a lot easier for me if I see a picture of it. And that's what Mark's gospel is. It's not teaching us. He's showing people the power of God. He's showing him as a servant to the people that were there rather than writing or preaching about it. Many believe that the Gospel of Mark was written from Peter's point of view. In other words, he, Mark would follow Peter around and write down everything Peter was saying and telling him. Some say he was Peter's interpreter, and it reflects the personal experiences of Peter. And a lot of people think it was the first of the four Gospels written. So, let's jump in verse 1. It says, here begins the good news about Jesus the Messiah and the Son of God. And the phrase literally is, in the beginning. Does that phrase sound familiar? It's the same phrasing that was used in Genesis. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. So Mark's not only writing an introduction, he's telling the readers that it's divine in nature. If they knew their Old Testament, if the Roman Christians, they knew some of the Old Testament, they would pick up on that phraseology. It's not just Mark's thoughts. The book is a divine revelation from God. And I think, I think we've talked about this a lot. 
it's not a bunch of guys writing a book. That's what the world thinks about the Bible. The Bible is, the Bible says everything was God-breathed. Through the people who wrote it, God dictated through them how to write it. Every word in here is God-inspired. And the Bible says it's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training. Notice how it has correcting, rebuking, training. Two correcting things, one encouraging thing. That means we mess up more often than we do right. God's word is there to tell us what we're doing that's not right. When you're raising little kids, you don't have to tell them what to do that's wrong, right? They pretty much can do what's wrong on their own. You as a parent have to tell them what is the right thing to do. When my grandkids come over, they wanna jump down the stairs onto the concrete steps below them. No, not gonna do that because what's gonna happen is you're gonna get hurt. And they wanna do things, they wanna help with things, and you have to tell them no. And then God's word is the one that says no, here's how you have to do this, this is the right way to do it, here's the wrong way to do it. So when Mark's writing this gospel, he's trying to tell the Roman Christians that this is not just Mark's opinion, this is God's word to them and how it applies to their life. To the Roman audience, it literally means, the word gospel, when he says this is the good news, it literally, literally meant joyful news about the emperor when it says good news or the gospel. So instead of the emperor, it's joyful news about the Messiah who is in fact the son of God. So now the Roman people who are reading this, Roman Christians who are reading this, understand who he's talking about. Mark doesn't waste any time. He tells them right off the bat who this book is about. Okay, this book, before you even start, this is the, this is the theme of the book. This is who we're talking about. Who is this servant you're going to be reading about, Mark's writing, basically. In verse 2 it says, It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. I never noticed this before, but when you read it, when you read Jesus saying, or any, in the Bible saying, it is written. Now, I'm not an English major, but don't you think it should be, it was written? Why wasn't it do that? Why didn't, why didn't he say it was written? Because it was written prior. The reason it's saying, it is written is because it still applies today. It's active today as much as it was the time it was written. So it is written means it applies right now. And Mark wanted them to know the ministry of Jesus were rooted in the Old Testament. So he's using Old Testament references to the Roman Christians, they understood it, but now he's saying whatever was written then is applicable today just as it was back then. And many times when the, any king would send someone to announce his arrival. What the, that person would do is he would, I didn't realize this, he would prepare the roads that led into the town. If there's potholes or something, they should come to PA, fix those roads. They would repair the roads for his entourage and prepare the people, get them excited for the king to arrive. Now, if you've ever had a presidential arrival here or anywhere in this town, they scout the thing out way beforehand, they close off all the roads, and they get the crowds of people ready for wherever he's gonna be. And that's exactly what, when you would send a person ahead of a king, this is what he would do. He would prepare the roads, make sure they're clean, all the riffraff off the roads, and get the people ready for the king. 
Mark was doing that in preparation for the Messiah. And the people understood the terms he was saying because they were used to it from before. Prepare the way for the Lord literally means prepare the people. Prepare the people for him coming. Make straight paths for him. Prepare the roads. He wasn't telling them actually to repair roads. He was telling them, to, he was going to get across to them, look, the king is coming. This is how you would behave when a regular king comes. This is what you I want you to understand. This is how Jesus is going to be retreated. He is a king. By calling the nations to repent, John was preparing the way for the Lord. Mark was the first witness to announce the Lord. Two or more witnesses was needed. The prophets were the second witness. He quoted Isaiah. John the Baptist was the third witness. Verse 4 says this, And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever some, someone comes to Christ or gets saved, whatever term you want to use, two things happen. One is you repent of your sin. You realize what you've done is sinful and you turn. It literally means to turn 180 away from it. A complete turnaround, a change of mind, 180 degrees from your own way. You admit your sin and you turn and you walk the other way. Bat baptism was not the main issue. Repentance was. For them, baptism is only symbolic of what's already happened. And if you've been through our baptism class, you know that. Water baptism is just, it's an outward sign of something that's already happened inwardly. You got saved, you became a new person, the old person died, and you buried that person in the water. New person came up out of the water, new creation. That's what, that's what water baptism symbolizes. Baptism does not save you. If you were baptized as a baby, it doesn't count. You have to be baptized as an adult when you're making the choice to do it yourself. True repentance is when it enables a person by faith to receive God's grace and forgiveness. In other words, if you don't believe in God, how can you repent? If you don't believe there's forgiveness for your sin, why would you need to repent? Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So when John comes through first, he's saying, look, repent. Turn away from your sin. Mark's saying, the reason he said that is because Jesus is now coming to do the second work. And verse 5 says, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, remember, there's, there's been no prophetic word from God for 400 years since, since Micah. Micah was actually the last book written in the Old Testament, not Malachi. But 400 years since Micah, Micah was the last book. And for the point is, for 400 years, there's been no prophets, nothing from God, no oracle from God. And so naturally, everyone's wanting to see this guy, John. He's claiming to be a prophet. He's claiming to be somebody sent from God. And so they were anxious to see what he was up to. And the reason they were doing that is because they weren't getting it from their religious leaders. The people that were there supposed to be doing it weren't doing it. And so they were... You ever been in a dead church? You walk into a church and you're there and you just... They go through the motions and it's just, it's, the Holy Spirit's not there at all. It's just dead. 
And then finally you, you read something or you go to a church that is alive and you, it's a world of difference. They were, going to, they were going to synagogues and they were listening, but they weren't getting anything from it. And they finally hear, this is dude in the wilderness, man. He's living on berries and, and bugs and stuff. He's from God. Let's go see him. People want spiritual things. People are hungry for the things of God. They don't know it. They have a vacuum in their heart and they're hungry for something that's supernatural. And when they don't get it someplace, they're gonna find someplace where they can get it. We wanna be sure that when they come here or come into our sphere of influence, we're able to share with them what God did for them. I remember when I went, first went to college, my girlfriend at the time gave me a Bible to read and I've never had a Bible. So I start reading from Genesis and I got about three or four pages into it and I said, yeah, I have no idea what they're talking about. Then I get saved and total difference, totally different. The word actually now becomes alive. I get to understand it and it means something to me. And that's what's happening to the people there. They were getting read to by all these rabbis and things were going on and they just didn't get it and dead church. And then they hear about something that Jesus is doing in the desert or John's doing in the desert. And it goes from them from being a dead ritual to alive experiences. That's why we should be excited every time we get together. Because God, we expect him to move. Right? We expect God to do something because God is what? He's a, God's alive. He's not dead. If he's alive, he's here. And we should expect God to do something. John was preparing the people for Jesus' arrival for them to receive the full revelation of Jesus Christ. You don't, you don't receive the full revelation of Christ until you repent in faith. You can, you can walk all day long up to the altar and if you don't have faith and you don't repent, you're not gonna feel it. But when you come and you actually repent every sin, that's why John's saying, hey, repent, Jesus is coming. Repentance first, then Jesus. And well, for us, it happens at the same time. You repent and you trust Christ for your your sins for, to be forgiven, and then Christ comes in and, and puts the light bulb on your head, you get it. Think of someone trying to explain to you what a relationship with Jesus is like before you were a Christian. You can only go so far, right? You can only argue or fight or whatever so far. And then you come to a, in a live church and you get saved and you experience the full revelation of Christ for yourself. Big difference. There's a difference from being told about it to actually experiencing it. People for three years would tell me about the relationship but I never got it. I was in church, I knew the mechanics of the service, I knew how it was gonna go. I didn't know the experience of knowing Jesus. Then finally God got my attention, I realized it, I admitted I needed Jesus and then the full revelation come. It wasn't from sitting in church for three years, every service. That didn't do it. It had to be when I chose to accept Christ. Then the revelation came. And John was preparing them to receive that full revelation. Mark 1.6, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey. I don't know about it. You gotta be called by God to do that. But his, what he was wearing made the people think about Elijah because what he was wearing 
was similar to what Elijah wore. Second Kings 1.8, it says, they replied, he was a man with a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was Elijah the Tishbite. So these people may have noticed that and said, you know, that dude looks like Elijah. And what's the Bible say? He came in the spirit of Elijah. Remember what Luke said about John the Baptist. In verse 17 of Luke 1, it says, He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. People were hungry to hear from God, and they believed that John was a prophet, so they were thronging to hear what he had to say. And yes, if you're wondering, if you have this in your diet, locusts are listed as clean foods. Old Testament, if you're going to go by an Old Testament diet, Leviticus 11.22 says, Of these you may eat any kind of locust, katydid, cricket, or grasshopper. So after our fast is over, all those treats that they're selling downstairs, might want to check to see if they're crunchy inside. Maybe you should have that tonight. Be like John the Baptist. Get some crickets and wash it down. We could be like John. Get that old furry coat out that mohair seats if you're that old you remember the cars that had mohair seats no thank you verse 7 says and this was his message after me will come one more powerful than i am the thongs of whose sandals i am not worthy to stoop down and untie i baptize you with water but he will baptize you with the holy spirit now notice through the book of mark he does not preach to the pharisees sadducees tax collectors like he does in matthew and luke but he gets right to the point again. He's basically telling them, I'm just a messenger, and I'm telling you to get ready for the one you've been thinking about. You've been waiting for this Messiah. You've been waiting for the, this Savior. He's coming, and he's, you're going to see what he does to prove that, who, that is who he is. Mark focuses on the coming of Jesus, the one who can truly forgive sins. What's he say? I baptized you because you repented of your sins. But Jesus will actually forgive you of your sins. Again, baptism doesn't cleanse you of sin. Another way to phrase that is, he will not dunk you in water, but he will fill you with the Holy Spirit, which will enable you to live like you say you want to live since you repented. We all want to live better, right? We all want to do better. Well, the Bible says the Holy Spirit enables you to do that. However, you need to have a diet of the Holy Spirit. If you eat, well, we've been fasting. How many eat at sundown, 6 o'clock? How many at 6 o'clock you just will eat anything and everything they put in front of you, right? Because you are starving. Now, I'll go to the grocery store yesterday, and when you're hungry, everything looks good. And you've got to, like, not put stuff in your buggy that you're going to eat later because you're starving, if the only meal you get is at 6 o'clock at night, the rest of your day, you're going to be starved. If the only meal you get is on Sunday morning, you're going to be starving for the Holy Spirit the rest of the week. 
Marlene said in her class, what did she say? 14% of Christians, Christians read their Bible every day. That's, now, it's not this church. That's the church over there. Because I know everyone here has 100% every day reading your Bible. Because every day you eat food, right? Anybody not eat? How many fasted for 21 days straight with no, no sundown dinner? Okay. Can you imagine going that long without reading God's word? You should be hungry for it every day. And if you don't get to read it every day, you shouldn't feel guilty, but you should feel hungry for it. Mark's saying, you think I'm a good preacher? I, or John's saying, I'm not, you think I'm a good preacher? I'm not even good enough to bow down and tie his shoes. Wait until Jesus gets here. And verse 9 says, At that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Notice Mark does not record Jesus' reluctance to get water baptized. He just tells us that he was baptized. Jesus did not get baptized because he repented of sin. He did it to identify with his human nature. How many have been watching The, the Chosen? You know what's really cool about that? Is you get the... Now these are obviously, they do the Bible stories, the stuff that's in the Bible, they do those. But they have to fill it with, you know, other things. How do you think Jesus would have reacted with his friends? One, one guy says, Jesus told a joke. You know, if he was a human guy, he might have told a joke. And the Bible doesn't record it, but if he lived as humans do, he might have told a joke. One of the scenes in the thing, he has an argument with John the Baptist. They were cousins. Could that have happened? Anybody ever argue with their family member? Could have happened. John, in the, in the movie or the TV show, John got it. He said, oh, you're right. But you see Jesus in his humanity. His humanity. And sometimes all we think about is you know, we watch the, the Ten Commandments or the greatest story ever told or any of those Jesus movies, you know, we always see Jesus as stoic. You don't get to see him walking around and eating with his buddies and sitting down and talking. And again, this all made up, but it gives you an example of what Jesus could have been like. Jesus is an example to us through his water baptism. If Jesus did it to fulfill all righteousness, which is what it says, then who are we to say we shouldn't be water baptized? Now, I think everybody here has been water baptized. If you've been saved, you should be water baptized. Again, not to save you, not to make you a better Christian, but it's to make you, you do what Jesus said to do. How many of you told your kids when they ask you why you have to do something? Because I said so. Right? We'll get used to it. Get used to it. You wait. Yeah, they're nice and cuddly now. Wait until they're 13. With an attitude. Verse 10 says, As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. 
This is the final witness to identify God's servant to everyone around there. We had Mark, we had the prophets, we had John the Baptist, and now we have two parts of the Holy Trinity, the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus and the Father identified him. Now, if you read, I, I didn't realize this until I was studying it, only John and Jesus heard it. Nobody else, you know, the crowd that was around him didn't hear it. In John 1.32 it says, Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize me with water told me. I think John would have said, we saw and we were told. And of course, Jesus heard him. The father said, you are my son. So he's addressing Jesus. Jesus heard it. Another description of the Trinity. Another term that we can't explain or comprehend in our finite minds. The Trinity. How can... Each part, there's three parts of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each part is part of God, but each part is holy God in themselves. Can't explain it. That's one of those faith things. You gotta, you gotta understand it. Believe it's in the Bible and just go with it. Mark 12 says, or 112, at once the Spirit sent him into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with all the wild animals and the angels attended him. Right after this powerful display of God coming down in this form of a dove on him and God speaking from heaven, guess what happens? Jesus gets tempted. In fact, God pushed him into the desert. The Bible says he was drove into the desert. You can expect your greatest temptation right after your biggest blessing. You're, you're caught off guard. Things are going great. You've just been blessed. And all of a sudden, the enemy's going to throw something at you to get you off your game. You have to always be on guard, especially when God is moving in your life. We fasted and prayed for God to move in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe we saw that, a little bit of it last week. That should not be the end of it, by the way. Not a one-time thing. That should be a consistent wanting to see God move. But we better be on guard for the temptation that is going to follow that. And I mentioned last week before we leave, don't let the enemy take it from you. If you believe God did something for you in a service, don't let the enemy take it from you when you walk out the door. Oh, God didn't really do anything. It was just my emotions. I just, yeah, I don't expect God to do it. I, I thought so at the time, but no. If God said it, God's going to do it. Don't let the enemy take it away from you. Continue to walk in faith because the enemy will try to steal that from you. And that may mean continuing to pray and fast for what God's speaking to you about. Don't let the enemy stop you. If we stop tonight, if you feel God's prompting you to keep doing it, keep doing it because God's going to work in you. God's going to do something in you and he's going to do something through you. Another aspect of this is right after the blessing, God gives Jesus a job to do. He could, have, you know, he could have sat on the shore and said, you know, that was pretty awesome. Great baptism, man. God showed up. Hallelujah. Let's praise the Lord. Just sit in the beach here for a while. No. God drove him into the desert to be tempted. He got right to work. 
When we are the recipients of God pouring out his Holy Spirit, we are more receptive to what the Holy Spirit wants for us to do. And God will speak to you in those times about something that you are to do. When you're praying or God is moving in a service in your personal lives, we're more apt to hear from God because we're listening. Again, we're praying for the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit. And we better be listening because if we let it go too long, we're going to forget what God told us. Again, the enemy is going to take it from you. Or we're going to dismiss it. When I come in to pray, I take notes. If I feel God saying something, I write it down. Because I will forget it before I walk out the door. Or more likely, the enemy will fill your mind with a bunch of other stuff that puts down on the list of priorities what God told you to do. We need to act on what we feel God is showing us to do now. Jesus went right to work. Mark didn't tell us that Jesus fasted, but Matthew does. Matthew 4.2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I can't, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Our home church, we tried that once. 40-day fast. Didn't go well. I mean, a couple of people got really sick from doing it. We don't recommend doing that. But Jesus fasted 40 days. So I'm... He had a fast to be equipped to overcome temptation and equipped the minister. If he had to do that, how much more should we have to do that? Before God did any miracles in him, he fasted and prayed and was tempted. Then he started doing miracles. If God wants to use you and you want to be used by God, God's going to test you first. God's going to see how serious you are about this. And it's during those times that God's going to give you, give you his direction. Israel spent 40 years in the desert because they failed and grumbled and complained the whole time. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness without any complaining and succeeded. Adam was in a beautiful garden and he failed. Jesus was in a wild, dangerous wilderness and he succeeded. Adam lost his dominion over sin and the animal kingdom. Jesus defeated temptation and sin and was not hurt by the animal kingdom because he had dominion over them. Now, what's the takeaway from this? And we're going to do this next week, too. What's the two things you can leave with today? How is this applicable to me? It's one thing to do a Bible study, but if it doesn't apply to me, then why do it? Well, here's two. If you want to be like Jesus, you first have to be obedient. That means listen and do. And it's not just the, the unique things that God may say to you as you're praying. I try to tell younger Christians who are trying to struggle with God's will, well, there's a lot of things in God's word that are very plain. Let's do those first. Let's, let's go to church. Let's read and pray. The Bible tells us to do that. Let's tithe. Let's trust God. Let's do the simple things. Let God work through us in the simple things we know to do. And then once we get those down pat, then pray for what God wants me to do specifically. James says, if you read the word of God, it's like looking in a mirror, seeing your face, seeing that black mark on your face, and walking away and forgetting it's even there. 
When we read God's word, we should expect God to speak to us through his word. What's God telling me in this passage? Is there something in this that God wants me to understand? And if it is, do what it says. Once we start doing that, then God will pour more of his spirit on you and give you more insight into that. I know God's speaking to everyone. Because God, the Bible says he speaks. He continues to work. The question is, are we listening? And do we do it? God directed Jesus to a difficult area to test him. God may direct you to a difficult area. God knew how Jesus would handle it. I think Jesus knew. But maybe Jesus didn't know how he was going to handle it in his human state. God knows what and how you're going to do. The question is, you don't know how you're going to do. He wants you to see how you handle that. How many, when you have kids, you know they're able, when, I was teaching my kids to ride a bike. You know they have the skill to ride a bike. They're afraid to do it, so you hold, I held their seat. And dad, hold my seat, don't let it go, don't let it go, I'm going to fall. I knew that they wouldn't fall. They didn't know they were going to fall. They didn't, weren't going to fall. So I would run behind them and let go of the seat. And I would run with them, not holding the bike. And finally I would stop and the bike would keep going. They had to see what I already knew they were going to do. God knows how you're going to handle every situation you come across. You don't know how you're going to handle it. God wants you to see, hey, you know what? I weathered that storm. God helped me through that storm. I thought it was, I thought it was horrible, but God helped me through it. And when you see that, when you see you handling something different than you did before, you know that God was there. I, I used to get really tense when my kids were learning to drive. Still do to a point, but you know, I, 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 they're all tailgaters and speeders, I'll tell you. <laughs> but as I'm teaching them to drive, I was nervous to let them go out by themselves. And every time the phone would ring, I'm like, oh. and one time, you know, Taylor called and she had an accident. And I thought I was going to freak out. But I was calm. I was like, okay. Holy Spirit, thank you for allowing me to be calm. You know, are you okay? Is everybody okay? I didn't ask how the car was until I got further on down the list of everybody being okay. When you see God working in you like that, you know you're drawing closer. And you're more, you're more receptive to hearing what God has for you to do. The second thing is when you get there, whenever you get where God's taken you, and you experience a blessing, and you're going to get a blessing from being obedient, keep your guard up so the enemy doesn't defeat you from that blessing. When you start doing something for God, and you, I remember, I told you this before, when our old pastor, he put me in, in the kids' ministry for a couple years. And I'm like, kids, <laughs> not kids. So I go in the kids' ministry, and I'm like, this is not my calling. This is not me. So I'm in there, and I'm doing kids' ministry, and I'm, I had a great team of people around me. And by the end of the three years, I loved those kids, man. It was great. And they're up, when we were leaving, they are all crying and hugging me, and that was a blessing from being obedient you didn't want to do it, but you knew that when you were doing it, you were blessed. 
Whenever you step out and do something that you may feel ill-equipped to do or maybe not even want to do, when you start doing, you realize that God's going to bless you in that ministry, whatever that is. Whether it's here or outside in your job, God's going to bless you for that. But when that happens, don't let the enemy, there's a, there's a line from a movie that says, oh, Star Wars. They're fighting the first one they're fighting. And Luke, or Luke says, hey, I got one. And Hans Schiller says, don't get cocky, kid. Don't get cocky when you're doing something. You seem to be doing it well. Hey, this is easy. I don't need to pray about this anymore. I can, I can teach and I can do this and I can do that. I, don't, I don't really don't need to pray anymore because I got this down pretty good. No. It's the enemy wanting to get in and ruin what he's already doing in you. The minute you think you can do it without God is the minute you're going to fail. Now, you may not fail in other people's eyes, but you're going to fail in your own eyes and you're going to fail in God's eyes. One of the things I prayed, and I don't think, I know God's answered this one. I said, don't let me be so good at talking that I don't need you to help me to talk. And I, I can tell when I don't. I can tell when there's less time praying about it than when there is more time praying about it. I can tell how it comes across. You may not know, but I know. Maybe some of you do know. My wife will know. But you want to be sure that you don't get cocky thinking that you have it handled. Man, I got this blessing. God's already with me, man. It's just chug, chug along. Thanks, Lord, for the beginning, and I'll just take it from here. No. God gave the beginning, but God's got to see you through the end of it as well. So whatever God's calling you to do, it's going to be a blessing. Listen to what he's saying. Don't dismiss it. Pray about it. Just don't dismiss every thought you have, everything you think that God's given you. Write it down. Write every little thing down you think about it. And that after, as days go on, what I found out is if, if it's me, I'll forget about it. But if it's God, it'll keep coming back to my mind. And then once you step out knowing it's God, let God work through you until, the, until it's over. Until God accomplishes in you what he wants to accomplish. Because he's more important, it's more, he's more concerned about you than your ministry. How many know that? He's more concerned about you than your job, you than your family. Because if you're right, everything else will be right. But if you're not right, nothing else will be right. Would you stand as we close this morning? Would you bow your heads for a moment? Never want to take it for granted that everybody here who comes to this church has gotten the opportunity to, as we said before, repent of their sins and receive God's forgiveness. Like I said, I was in church for three years. Everybody thought I was a Christian, except God knew I wasn't. So it's easy to put up a front. It's easy to act like a Christian and not be one. If you're here this morning and you've never really come to that conclusion in your life that you need to repent of your sin, you need to acknowledge that you're a sinner. The Bible says for all have sinned, we all fall short. None of us are good enough, none of us will ever be good enough. 
The Bible also says the wages of those sins is death. Eternal separation from God. People ask, why does God send them to hell? God doesn't send anybody to hell. People choose that. They're already on that path. Jesus gives us a way out of the path. So if, not, if you have not repented, you're already in the path. You've chosen it. God hasn't chosen it, chosen it for you. But the Bible also says that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ. God gave you a way out of that path. God gave you a detour away from the path that leads to eternal destruction. And he gave you a path that leads to eternal life. And the only thing you have to do to make that, that lane change is to say, yes, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And yes, Lord, I believe that, Jesus, you died for me. You paid the price that my sins deserved me to pay. And because of what you did, I believe that your death substituted for mine. The Bible says you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. For it's with the heart you confess and the, and the heart you believe in your mouth you confess. So it's not just the words that you say, it's the attitude of your heart. Do you truly believe what the word says? If you're here and you can't remember a day in your life where you did that, you can't look back and say, you know, at this day, this time, this month, this year is when I got saved. And you're not sure. The Bible says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. So if you're not sure, then you might not have it. And this is the day for you. So if you're here and you've never had that experience, you've never really come to Christ for forgiveness of sins and you want to do that right now, I want you to raise your hand because we're going to pray and believe that God's going to do something in your life. Maybe you did come to a point in your life where you did that. You, you said the prayer, you, you, know, you prayed the prayer, you said everything you were supposed to say and you started going to church. And, but you know, as time goes on, you kind of fell away from it for a little bit. You're not exactly where you want to be you wish you were better and you want to get back involved. The Bible says that's the day. Today is the day for that too. It's never too late to come back. The Bible says that Jesus, and this is actually a verse written to Christians. Jesus says, I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. If you open it, I'll come in. Maybe Jesus is knocking on your door because you've been away from him for a while. And you felt the Holy Spirit prompting you to come back. Well, that's why you're here. God is sovereign. God allowed you to be here to hear something that you needed to hear. Because he knew that you needed to hear something specific for you. And maybe that's it. Maybe you feel like, oh, I've, I've been away too long, I can't come back. No. The Bible says any time you come back is a good time. So if you're here and you've kind of backslidden, as the Bible calls it, you've been away from God, but you want to renew that relationship, I want you to raise your hand because we're going to pray for you too. Well, let's pray. Father, we are humbled and we are thankful 
to be in the family of God. When we look back at where we were compared to where we are, all we can say is we are grateful, grateful, Lord, for all you've done for us. And because of our gratitude, Lord, we want to express that in how we live. Our goodness does not get us saved. Our goodness not, does not really keep us saved. Our goodness is just our sign to show you that we really appreciate you've done for us. Your word says, if you love me, you obey my commands. We want to show you that we love you. And I pray for each person here that you would help us to do what your word tells us to do. Let's do the simple things first. Let's love other people. Let's share the gospel with other people. Let's give of our time and our talents to the work of God. Allow us to be used by you in whatever area you like. Direct our path every day. And by simply living our life to please you, we want to show you our gratitude. So Father, I pray your anointing and blessing upon each person here. Allow them to experience that daily. As they wake up and they pray and they read, allow them to experience the presence of God in a powerful and tangible way. And Lord, I commit each one here to you in that end. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 God bless you. Have a great day.